0: Your IBD story, my IBD story. If these walls could talk, what a story they would tell. I bet your mate has been on quite a journey with your Crohn's and colitis as well. We never experience IBD in a vacuum or in a bubble. They are by our side, living IBD in their own way what is it like for them? What is it like for them to live with a partner who has Crohn's or colitis? Today on this very special 100th episode of the Cheeky Podcast, Bill and I are pulling back the curtain to let you in on our IBD story. This is one to listen to with your partner. Here we go. Hey, hey there, my friend, and a shout out to your partner in crime if you're joining us as well. This is a special one, episode 100, Woop and I cannot think of anyone I'd rather share the spotlight with than the man who's been there with me almost from the very beginning of my IBD journey, my hubby, Bill. Well, hey there my love. Thanks for joining me for my 100th episode. Can you believe it?
1: Hi, hey, and hello friends. I just wanted to been wanting to say that after listening to your podcast for 99 times.
0: Like you have. Yeah. That's me being sarcastic. You don't actually listen to the podcast, do you?
1: I listen to <laughs> some of some of them.
0: <laughs> Spoken like a true supportive spouse. Well, I thought that 100, it's a big deal. And because it's a big deal, I thought that it was time to really get vulnerable and peel back the curtain a little bit on what our life is like as an IBD couple. So me, the one with IBD, you, the partner, and also as a family, as a family unit and how Crohn's has impacted us. You know, we've been together you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's 25 or more years, something like that, at least 25 years. And it's been like this other, IBD has been like this other identity, right? This this entity in our relationship, you know? And it's just always present. It's always present for the highs, for the lows, for our whole life together. And so I have this series, on the show. It's called Her IBD Story. It's where I invite moms with IBD onto the show to tell us about what their life is like, what it's like for them to have Crohn's or colitis, what their struggles are, and then, of course, some of their triumphs. And it's really a way for us IBD moms to see ourselves in others. And to also just to know that we're not alone in this chronic illness space. And because sometimes I think it can be really isolating. So that's what that's all about. So this episode, it's going to be a similar experience for the listener, but with a little twist. So instead of her IBD story, this is their IBD story. IBD from a couple and a family perspective. And the hope is that our listeners might share this with their partner or maybe even their kids if they feel like it's appropriate for them depending on their age so that even the partner and the family will know that they're not alone in this either. So are you ready to dig in?
1: I love that idea and I am ready to go.
0: in this first section Bill and I talk about what it was like to be young and in love meeting the partner you've been searching for longing for dreaming about what your whole life will be like together and then him getting this double whammy smack like kind of like a record scratch right hold up there's just this one thing that I've got to share with you actually these two things Number one, I've got Crohn's, and I'm, number two, about to have bowel resection surgery. Let's get Bill's take. Okay, so we haven't talked about this episode at all. We, I, I have no idea where this is going to go. I don't know what, Bill, I don't know what you want to share. So we're just going to dive in, and we'll just see where the story takes us. How does that sound?
1: That sounds great. And I, I, can, even, I can even start because, first off, it's been almost 30 years that we've known each other and to back to when we first started dating. And I mentioned that because one of the first conversations, like really deep conversations that we had, like we had barely even been dating very much is when you shared with me that you had Crohn's disease and you talked to me about it and you educated me about it. And explained it, and sort of explained its impact on you. And I remember you kind of gave me an out. (laughs) You're like, if you aren't down with dealing with a whole life of that, then I totally understand. Um, But before we, you know, fall deeply in love and and build a whole life together, I want you to know that you can, you know, you have this out if you can't deal with that. And I'll be honest, I was like. Oh, sure, that'll be fine. No problem because I was just more interested in the getting started on a building a whole life with you um and was already deeply in love with you at that point, I think, so there was no backing out anyway um and it's so that moment always stuck with me, and it's been both easier. And the times harder than I would have expected, like what I thought, what's the worst that could happen with this Crohn's thing, you know, 30 years ago when you told me, um, it didn't fully prepare me for what was involved, but I don't think I would have changed my, the result either way. I wouldn't have backed out at the time. I haven't backed out in 30 years. So <laughs> you,
0: you couldn't possibly be prepared. If you, if you haven't, grown up with somebody that has a even just a chronic illness, right? If you haven't done that, how could you possibly prepare? And I remember that moment as well. And I don't know if for you if it seemed like it was spur of the moment, but it wasn't spur of the moment. It was something that I thought about for a long time. And I can remember my heart beating like through my clothes, you know, through my chest to have that conversation with you because I didn't want to have it, but I had to because I knew that I had to have surgery, and so i had to I had to tell you very soon in our relationship and just just like you, I knew I was already in love with you, so I wouldn't have had that conversation if I wasn't in love with you so I remember it being a difficult conversation, but I remember saying all in one fell swoop, I have Crohn's, and I have to have surgery and that was my that was my first Crohn's surgery, so when you and I met, I had had Crohn's for probably. About seven years before we even met, and I had gone to college with it, and I had been on all the medications that they throw at you, and it was tough. It was a it was a tough road, and then finally it was time for surgery, and I just remember telling you and feeling like, okay, what's he what's he going to say? Is he is he going to stay? Is he going to go? But I remember after after the surgery saying, oh, this guy's a keeper if he can handle this, he's a keeper.
1: Yeah. Right. I, I actually um, went up to Cleveland with you and your mother um, and stayed there um, for your surgery. And I remember doing laps around the hall. And um, I remember
0: and- you making fun of me because I had the patient shuffle. Do you remember yes, that? Yes. Yes. You had slippers. the patient shuffle.
1: Yep. <laughs> And, and I remember that we were just waiting for you to pass gas so that you could be discharged. And, and I remember my friend called it, uh, you're, oh, you're waiting for wind in the tunnel.
0: <laughs> that's so funny. And we're talking like, what, like four? we had been maybe dating for four months.
1: Yeah, probably. Like that's something That's just like that. so yeah.
0: weird. And I probably, I think it was a little, a few days. I wasn't having wind in the tunnel. So what an inoculation into the world of Crohn's.
1: Yep. (laughs) And I thought, ah, this isn't so bad. I can do this.
0: Talk about trial by fire. Bill and I fell in love at one of the lowest points in my life. I was probably looking for someone who could laugh with me about all the craziness Also, though someone steady, someone who could absorb some of my pain, which leads me to my next question for Bill. Does an IBD partner need to be your soulmate and your caregiver all rolled into one? And when your partner shows interest and concern for how you're doing and wants to help, but you don't want help in that moment... Can that create conflict in your relationship? Let's see what Bill has to say about that. You know, looking at myself in the mirror when I was having that surgery, I just thought, oh my gosh, I I cannot, I look like death and this guy is still around. So that had to be, I don't know. I mean, well, we, by then, you know, when you meet the person that you you dated the frogs and you meet the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with and you just know it. And so we were definitely in love. And so, but at the same time, it was also new. So I'm just wondering, what is that, you know, what, what is that like? What is that like for you when you have your life ahead with this person, you're all excited about it, but there's this dip in the road. And so I was, I remember being very focused on me. What was that like for you?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think for me, and, I, and I'm guessing this will kind of come up throughout, is that um, I I thrive on being a bit of a caretaker. That's important, seems important to me. I mean, I'm a psychologist, so that shouldn't be that surprising, but I think that's part of my psyche is to be a caretaker. So I think in those moments when you feel like you're focused on you and that you need a lot from me, I also feel like I'm at my best, able to give to you um, what you need and to be there for you. Um, and so, and so sometimes it's more challenging when you you know, when your needs are less obvious, that period for me, you know, kind of deepened my love for you because it fulfilled a need in me too. If that makes sense,
0: that that absolutely makes sense, and I think if anybody's look still looking for somebody a partner in their life, that is the like I just kind of lucked out. That's who I fell in love with. But maybe on some unconscious level, I was looking for somebody that had that caretaker personality as well. I never really thought about it that way, but you you know, there's so much, so many ups and downs with this that you really need somebody that's comfortable in that role.
1: The relationship evolves just like any relationship. And, you know, kind of the Crohn's is always in that relationship, but it kind of ebbs and flows or it's different over time. And, you know, there's, there's a term, I mean, probably most people know the term solicitous, but it's kind of a term that we use in psychology. If a, if a, and, and it comes up a lot, I did some research in chronic pain and, um, caretakers of people that have chronic pain, we have a measure that is about how solicitous that person is. And, um, kind of solicitous means kind of showing interest or concern. Um, and so I'm, I'm very solicitous by nature, right. And, but that's a double-edged sword. So, cause, because sometimes the person in pain or the person with Crohn's, Doesn't need or want as much interest or concern focused on them, right? Um, Wants to be more independent, Um, and so I think, yeah, I mean, I I guess it has its pros and cons, right? So you know, you say you're looking for some, you you may be looking for somebody that has that trait, but I think, as a person that has that solicitous trait, you also have to recognize the needs of the other person and 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 watch that tendency to kind of jump in when your help isn't needed or isn't needed in the same way.
0: It's such a good point that you bring up. And it's something that I feel like, at least from my perspective, that you and I have really had to deal with in our 30, you say 30 years that we've known each other. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I want you to ask all the time. I want you to say, how are you doing? And can I help you? But I don't. At the same time, I don't really want your help, <laughs> so, yep. so it leaves the caregiver or the your partner in this very tricky situation because I expect you to ask, "Can I help?" But yet, at the same time, I still want to. I want to do it all by myself.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it it's kind of overstated or cliche when you talk about couples, but I think communication is the biggest key. I I think, you know, again, your relationship with Crohn's has evolved um, and relationships evolve and it's just important to communicate about that, you know, kind of all the time.
0: So to my surprise, Bill jumped on board without missing a beat. He took care of me during my first major bowel surgery. And he became what I always lovingly call him my rock. And really just my grounding center. And that happened really early on. But at the same time, as we then get married and we enter into this new type of couplehood, we're living together and that's at a time in a relationship where I think you would really benefit from real vulnerability and honesty with your partner. That's key, right, in establishing healthy communication. But as you'll see, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to be honest with myself about the reality of my situation. So how could I be honest with Bill when I wasn't ready to be honest with myself?
1: One of the things that I learn about you all the time as i listen to your story is i learn new things all the time about you and about your perspective by listening to the podcast and sometimes and hearing you <laughs> and hearing you kind of share uh, your story in little tidbits i i always find out something new so i guess i my my question for you would be how how do you feel your like go back to after that first surgery in Cleveland and and coming back and and um, you know, kind of us getting married and and starting our life together and being in the military that kind of thing. Like, where where were, where were you at at that point after your first surgery? What's what's your story in that time?
0: Well Let's catch everybody up. We're talking about going to Cleveland to have surgery. So, we met in Florida. We were both in graduate school, and you join the military and so you move to texas and correct me if, because again this is a long time ago but so you moved to texas i'm still in florida but my primary doctor is at the cleveland clinic in cleveland ohio so i have surgery there and then we get married and then we move to sumter south carolina all right do i have that right
1: Good old Sumter, yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, lots of stories from there. Okay, so that just kind of catches you, listener, up on what was going on in our life at the time. It was, it was a little bit crazy trying to doing lots of moving and also having health issues at the time. And hmm, that's a good question. And like, where is my head at at the time? Who? I, hmm. I I could go in so many different directions. But in terms of couplehood and IBD, I just, I wanted that to be it. I wanted that to be the answer and the savior and the surgery to be the fix and to not have to deal with it anymore and to not talk about it anymore. It, it's a very vulnerable illness to have because it surrounds around your bowels. And that's just something that people don't talk about. And I didn't want to have to have that conversation with you. And I didn't want to have to rush to the bathroom. So even after my surgery and then we got married and now we're living in South Carolina, I still probably wasn't dealing with it as best I could. I probably wasn't letting you in enough on it because I didn't want to have to deal with it myself.
1: Yeah. That's what strikes me about that period. Looking back at it is that, um, that was the period of like almost ignorance about Crohn's. It was almost like you were pretending it wasn't there and I was able to pretend it wasn't there. And I don't remember Crohn's having a big impact on our life overtly during that time um, leading up to um, our first
0: child. Yeah, I think I was probably just for the most part, hiding it because it was still there. My surgery did not get rid of the Crohn's even for a minute. I still was having all kinds of abdominal pain and frequent diarrhea and malaise and fatigue and all those lovely things that we have with Crohn's and colitis. And I just was ignoring it, hiding it, pretending it didn't have such an impact on our life. And I could do that until we started to try to have a family. Not really the best start for a healthy relationship, but sometimes fate has a way of intervening. And even in truly devastating circumstances, Fate changes your life forever and it brings you gifts that you never thought you'd have in your life. And partners finally let their guard down and face reality. Now, listen in as Bill and I talk about our struggles to have our first child, about what we went through during that first pregnancy, and how ultimately it was the key to bringing us closer together. So, we had these good friends in South Carolina that got pregnant and had a baby. And we just thought, oh, this just – they they even had us in the delivery room. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. <laughs> so we just thought, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. Plus, I thought having Crohn's, I'm probably going to have a challenge getting pregnant. And I was right, right? We tried for three years to get pregnant. And we ended up going through infertility treatments. And I remember so vividly this – doctor that we went to for infertility in South in, it was in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh my goodness. I'll never forget him. He was horrible. We didn't end up going with him, but he told me that I just needed to gain weight. That was the reason why I wasn't getting pregnant. Do you remember this guy?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah. You're just, you're just too thin and there's nothing that I can do to help you. It has nothing to do with anything except you just don't eat enough. It was was something crazy like that. And um, yeah, do you remember him? That was challenging.
1: I do remember him. Yep.
0: Yeah. But then finally, we did find a a fertility clinic that helped us get pregnant. In Colombia, yeah. Yeah. And the reason now, we didn't know it at the time, but remember, I had just had the bowel surgery. I had a Four feet removed of my small intestine. We were experiencing infertility. And what I didn't realize is that another spaghetti string of bowel had formed. And that's why I wasn't getting pregnant.
1: Yeah. You're, you're, it's always like, it's almost like I conceive of it as like a part of your body was protecting another part of your body, right? It was using the energy. Yeah.
0: But we did get pregnant. Do you remember me saying to you, this is another time in our relationship where I was giving you an out as we're trying different fertility treatments and things are not working and it's going on and on. And I said, you know, we talked about having kids in our marriage and we can go down the adoption road. But if that's not something that you want to do, please let me know because- Feel free to get out of the marriage. Do you remember that?
1: Yeah. I didn't get out then either.
0: (laughs) Well, did you think about it?
1: No. (laughs) Nope.
0: No. Well, it's amazing that now, I mean, at one time I thought we were going to be a childless family and that was something that we had, that I really had to come to terms with because I felt like, I don't know if any of you listeners can relate to this, but I always felt like I wanted to be a mom from day one that I can remember in life. I wanted to be a mom. And so to not be able to achieve that on my own, I really felt like a failure. I felt like I was less than. And so that was definitely a struggle. But that was a time when Crohn's really, you know, I that, all that ignoring I was trying to do It really just reared its ugly head and said, hello, here, I'm here and I'm impacting you. And then I finally had to deal with it.
1: And I think the thing I remember about then is that um, there was so much focus on, I guess, getting pregnant and without going into all the details, all the stuff to do with my body and your body. And um, (laughs) it was almost like um, getting more intimate with your body in a way like you know with conversations about your body kind of made it easier to talk about when you're talking about histiopheniograms and you know this and that and um, you know um, cervical massage and all these different kinds of things that we were going through and clomid and all those things that we had to go like we were constantly talking about you know kind of those aspects of the biological aspects of bodies that it kind of in a way it kind of Normalized talking about bodily functions, mm-hmm. but focused on having a baby instead of like like you said, focused on bowels. But it just kind of. Ever since then, I felt more comfortable having biological discussions with you. If that if that makes sense,
0: we've come such a long way because now we're i'll talk about poop at the ta- at the dinner table and you're like really oh, yeah. <laughs> yep <laughs> so yeah i think you're right i mean we were forced to be so open like cause i i needed your help even when i got pregnant there was the perianal massage that you had to do and if you don't know what that is look that up it's a very It's not a it's not a sexual thing. It's a very but very intimate thing that you do with your partner to help them prepare for the widening of the vagina during childbirth. So that's a very intimate thing. And I I remember eating because again, with pregnancy, there's bowel issues because a lot of times you'll get constipated. And so here I am laying in bed, you're doing the perineal massage and I'm eating prunes to help me poop. Do you remember? (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. So talk about just like some something that just really just brings you closer as a couple. That probably was the tipping point to just really me owning Crohn's, getting comfortable talking to you about it. And it was all through the birth of our first child. There was definitely a time in my life when I thought that Bill and I would be childless. I can't believe how blessed we are that we have three amazing kids. It's beyond my wildest thoughts, really. And because of military life, and specifically Bill's chosen profession within the military, we ended up moving a lot, sometimes every year. Each of our kids was born in a different state. And of course, that meant changing gastroenterologists about every year as well. And with that in mind, Bill and I discuss how it would have been good for me to have continuity of care. You know, the benefit of having the same IBD doctor treat you over a period of time because they become so familiar with you. They know you so well. And then you're more comfortable talking with them, being vulnerable and honest about situations that might be embarrassing, talking to someone who you've just met. And I love how Bill chimes in here talking about the pitfalls that continuity can also create as well. So the opposite effect. He brings up some really good points. Let's listen in.
1: Did we know that you were pretty sick? like that your crohn's was forgotten. Progr- we like,
0: didn't know. Yeah. We yeah. did not know that at the time. We knew that I had infertility issues. We knew that it was most likely due to the crohn's, but they did not know that I had pretty much a spaghetti string of intestine.
1: Yeah, cuz and- you had you had the second surgery pretty much right after Dylan was born within yeah. like what, nine months, something like that. He was yeah. Little, it was little, even little. closer
0: than it was even closer than that. It was about six months. I yeah. think after he was born. Yeah. So there we are there, the second surgery. And now I'm not at the Cleveland clinic anymore because now you're in the military. And so now that second surgery all happens in a military hospital system.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that was a big challenge that, that we had, and I don't know if everybody has it um, in, in a different way, but I, 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 I know that one of the problems with the military for someone with a chronic, uh, with, you know, with a family member that has a chronic condition like that is continuity of care. And, you know, you, you, know, you had a different doctor at Shaw and then in Sumter, yeah, in, in Sumter, South Carolina. And then um, we got pregnant with our oldest there, and then had our oldest at Wolford Hall in San Antonio, Texas, where I was only assigned for a year. Had him, and you had some care there, but minimal um, GI care. And then we moved to Biloxi, where you had, um, where you, you had, um, the surgery, the, the second That's surgery right. with a completely different doctor space. that had known you for just a couple of months. Yeah. I think I knew
0: going there, I think I knew I was going to have the surgery and I contemplated, I remember my mother saying, Karen, you should really just go to the Cleveland Clinic again. They know what they're doing. And I said, no, 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 I want to have it. I don't know why, you know, it was a long time ago. I don't remember why I chose to do it, but bad decision because it was not like the first (laughs) surgery that had been done so well you know, the surgeons at the Cleveland Clinic are just amazing. And yeah, it was not the best experience at all, having it done there. Not I mean, I don't even remember the doctor's name, but it just wasn't a great experience. And then I believe shortly after that, we moved again. So again, this whole continuity. So if, if you're moving quite a bit, or, or even if you're just not happy with your doctor and your doctor hopping, that can really be A challenging aspect of the illness.
1: Yeah, I mean, we talk about this concept of continuity of care and how important it is, but the other aspect of, like, nothing beats consistent care from a good provider, but continuity of care could also be consistent care from a bad provider, right? So, you know, Continuity is important, but so is having a physician that you can trust, or or maybe even a medical system like Cleveland or, or Johns Hopkins or somebody like that, where you where you that you trust them um, and that they have your best interests. So, um, I think that was a big challenge.
0: Love that point that Bill makes about how continuity of care may be good, but it can also end up being a negative if you are staying with a doctor out of fear to leave, not because you are getting good care, which is a brilliant segue into the next topic Bill and I explore, which is when you, the IBD patient, discover, holy crap, I've been going in the wrong direction all along. Like huge light bulbs, aha moment. I've been basing all my healing hopes and dreams on every word that comes out of my doctor's mouth, and I'm no better. I bet that message resonates with you at least a little bit, or you wouldn't be a cheeky podcast listener. Taking control of your own care listening to your own inner wisdom is what this show is all about. So at the time when I was really stepping into my own power with my Crohn's, Bill was still very much into the western model of medical treatment. And as you'll see here, so was his boss, who also happened to be my doctor. Around this time, my thinking about Crohn's is starting to change. I'm no longer able to be the happy little patient. I'm not ignoring the fact that I have Crohn's anymore. I'm really owning it and I'm saying to myself, "Wait a minute. I have two children now. I'm getting older and life is really sucky and I don't want I don't want this anymore." And everybody that's helping me and I'm going from doctor to doctor in this military life, they're not helping me. And so there's this divergence from what the doctors are saying and my belief system. And that definitely – and I don't know how that was for you because you're in the military. You're a doctor in the military. I don't know. Did, did you feel like, well, she really should just do what the medical system wants her to do? Or did you kind of take that journey with me? You've always accepted it and supported it, but I don't know. How did you feel as my mind started to just shift and say there has to be a different way?
1: Yeah, I know I I know um you know I was really into the military and and proud of being in the military and and proud of the military medical system and and so I think as you were I I remember being acutely aware of you and your kind of evolution of thinking and and kind of wanting to broaden um what you considered you know kind of to be care more a more holistic version than what the you know, military medical providers were, you know, kind of giving you. And I remember that being kind of a, a struggle. And it really came, it really came to a, a head. It was really interesting because when we moved overseas, in order to take a family member that has what they call exceptional needs, you have to go through a process to make sure that there are qualified providers to meet your needs in the overseas location. And it just so happened that a gastroenterologist was at our base in England. um, And it was just, and this is how, you know, small world, you know, the military is, especially the military medical system is your GI was my, my squadron commander, (laughs) my, Mm -hmm. my, my direct boss. Um, And I remember, you know, you, you kind of, putting your elbows out and starting to kind of define your space. And, and, and that provider was, you know, kind of very strict, you know, kind of, uh, Western, Western medicine. Um, I don't remember provider. that
0: provider's name, but we won't see it on air, I but you tell me, tell me after.
1: <laughs> I remember. Um, and, and so I, I know that you had some, I don't know if I, it, respectful, but heated conversations with her about what you wanted and what you needed. And that's when I was really aware that, you know, that you were starting to kind of expand what you know and take more control yes. I mean, is the thing that struck me was to take more control of your care and and start to conceptualize, you know, your role in your own medical care versus kind of doing what Western doctors told you. And I yeah, so I was acutely aware of kind of that evolution. But mainly because I was worried that my (laughs) squadron commander was going to, you know, string me up or something.
0: So all this pushing out and questioning the status quo, all of that that Bill and I talk about, it's leading somewhere. It's leading to a life transition, a life transformation, really. Finally, I discover the power of food. The power of food. Food is medicine. I know, it took me long enough. And next you'll hear Bill talk about how happy he is for me that I found this incredible answer to help my health. But how it isn't without its demands and challenges on the whole family. What is it like to be a gut healing diet spouse and a child of someone who eats this way let's find out now i'm saying okay you're the doctor and you're working for me and i'm going to take your advice but that is what it is to me it's advice and now i'm gonna then run in the direction that i want to go in i I value you i think that you have so much knowledge you've gone to medical school and that's awesome But I'm not going to be the happy little do-whatever-you-tell-me-to-do patient anymore because, you know what? That hasn't worked for me. And so I need to try a different approach. And when we moved back from England, that's when all of that happened. You got out of the military. We moved and settled in Maryland. And that's when it all really kind of came to a head. And I said, I'm just done. I'm done with this. And if if somebody's going to help me, it's going to be me.
1: Yep. I remember that distinctly. And I mainly remember it because, um, when we moved back is when you started to hone in on using food. That's right. And, and, um, and, and, you know, trying the, I think, I think at that time, pretty much pretty early on, it was the SCD.
0: The specific Um, carbohydrate diet.
1: Yep. And, and then that, that led into a whole series of fun where the whole family was was doing various diets with you.
0: Well you it's really difficult. I know I have some clients who do the specific carbohydrate diet or the autoimmune paleo or you know whatever gut healing diet it is and they do it just them and then their family just you know goes about their own business. But even in that case, it will still affect the family because You can't do that on your own and not have it affect everybody else because either it's you're cooking in the kitchen and it's taking time away from spending time with your spouse or your kids or you're making meals for them. And the approach that I took was that everybody in the family is going to eat like me. So we had... Children who had some gastrointestinal challenges like uh, dairy intolerance and gluten sensitivity. And so I thought, in my wisdom, I thought, well, let's just have everybody eat like I eat and I will make an extra starch for them, you know, some rice or potato or french fries, right? I'll make pizza for them. But for me, they're going to eat mostly what I eat, but then there's like a side or something like that. And so I don't know. For at some point, that went over like a lead balloon. But in the beginning, when the kids were little, how do you think that went?
1: I think when the kids were little, they didn't they didn't really know that much different. I just remember that when we started the the SCD, I love imme- how you say we. There was the immediate um, an immediate period of. Irritability ensued (laughs) because in
0: me, in in all of us because it's
1: it's just for for those spouses out there if if you follow this diet you will be infinitely more healthy and you'll feel better and anytime you don't like I travel and so I would leave and I would I would go on a trip and I would immediately be sick from eating out stuff that used to never bother me bothered me because it's so gross. And I'm so used to being so healthy. And so that sounds like a weird way to say that's a benefit, but that's a benefit. But I just remember the first thing was being so like carb withdrawal is a real thing. And for, for me, it was irritability. I'm like, give me some damn bread. I just, (laughs) I just remember being so irritable for bread
0: (laughs) Did you sneak out to get McDonald's and things like that? Oh, God,
1: no. Oh, you didn't? No. No, I don't remember doing that, but I do remember just being kind of irritable for a while. Um, But again, overall, you know, kind of feeling better. I know the kids were healthier and doing better. Um, And
0: I was, I mean, for the first time. This is now 20 years into my illness where I finally did this. And within one week of starting the specific carbohydrate diet, I was like a new person. So absolutely worth it. But, and even for the family, but hard, right? Hard. Yeah.
1: Very hard.
0: I've led countless mamas and a few cool dudes. If you're listening, you know who you are through their journey of figuring out the gut healing diet that works best for them. And it's always different for each family. Only you can decide how involved your clan is going to get. It will certainly change as the age of your kids change. But I think the bottom line is that it's important to talk about it, not to take any of this for granted and have a food plan that is agreed upon by all. Next, Bill and I move a little bit deeper into the food is medicine conversation. We explore the art of embracing a new lifestyle instead of engaging in a new diet and how there's a few character traits that have really played a role in my success in sticking to this way of eating for over 12 years wondering if you have these gut healing diet success character traits as well. Listen to this.
1: And, you know, this is one of the things that I have always found amazingly remarkable about you and and probably folks that listen to the podcast already recognize this too, is you have an unusual amount of willpower. So I guess my, you know, because like, most people can try a diet. I mean, I just remember you starting off with just making your own yogurt and that's all you would eat and, you know, slowly like adding stuff to like, I just, most people can't stick with that for even a couple of weeks. And I I think probably it gets easier after a couple of weeks, but then it like, I don't, I, I'm going to, I'll pause there. Cause I really want to ask you, like, how do you do it? Like, how do you maintain the willpower to kind of stick like to not cheat or to stick with um with that because i know it's a it's got to be a challenge
0: yeah Mm -hmm. i don't for me it isn't that challenging but i see it in others And I recognize it and I know that it's difficult. And part of the reason, one of the big reasons why the specific carbohydrate diet or any of the gut healing diets don't work is because you don't stick to them because they are very disruptive to standard American diet life. But it's two things for me. It's the willpower comes naturally to me. So if you have a natural gift towards well, maybe it's because I'm strong-willed. So if you have a natural gift towards being strong-willed, I think that it, that is a key to being successful on diets like these. So that was one thing. And then seeing the results, you know, when you see that I cannot believe how good I feel. I cannot believe that I didn't spend hours in the bathroom and that my stomach isn't all bloated and I'm not having all this gas. When you see that. And you feel so good. And I remember eating a strawberry for the first time and not having it impact me and thinking, everybody should just revel in this moment. And I see people eating strawberries and apples and salads, and they're not even thinking twice about it. But I appreciate that so much every time I'm able to eat something like that. And that appreciation moves you forward. And then the other thing that really made a big difference for me in being successful is that I had somebody by my side telling me, do this and do that. And it was that person that was so profound, had such a profound impact on my life that that's what led me to this career in health coaching, because I knew the power of having somebody by your side. And because these diets are so Difficult. And let me tell you something when it comes to Crohn's and colitis, food is always on the table. There always has to be some sort of diet component, right? There's medication, there's supplements, there's a lifestyle, there's mindset, there's so much, but food has to be a part of it. And if you don't have that willpower, if you are confused by what the diet is all about, you have to get somebody on your side to help you who is just maybe just a couple steps ahead of you, right? It doesn't have to be Somebody with you know a guru with many advanced degrees, it just has to be somebody who's done it who's walked that walk before who's who who can really just support you as you do it so it was those things it was that i I do have a a willpower type of energy in me getting somebody to help me and then seeing the results that's what really helped me stay focused on it, able to be successful on it
1: yeah i i I for sure think that your willfulness and willpower are, are a big component, but, you know, I, I don't want to open a whole can of worms. And I know you've talked about this in various ways on your podcast before, but I think, um, and it's again, kind of cliche to say, you know, diet is a four letter word type of thing. It's, you know, cause when, I, I think the difference is that my perspective is that you have seen it as a lifestyle change and not a diet right? Now the diet air quote diet that you're on may change, but it, you have embraced a, a, a lifestyle of eating in a way that's different than most people do. And, and have come to terms with that. I mean, you can think about it like quitting drinking or quitting smoking or quitting anything else that, you know, people talk about it's, it's a habit. And to break that habit, you have to have a new you have to embrace a new lifestyle and I think that's what you've done is you you don't see it as oh I'm on a diet and it's a temporary thing and I just need to white knuckle it it's it's a lifestyle change you've embraced the concept that food in whatever form you take it in and and that may change over time but that food is a major component of your well-being and I think that mindset makes a big difference as well. Cause I don't think anybody, I don't think there's anybody that can white knuckle anything forever. And so at some point, if you, if you do kind of picture yourself as a person that loves pizza or loves this or loves that or whatever, um, grieving that you can't have it in that way. And and then moving on into a new lifestyle, I think, is the big key. And, and I'll also say, too, I don't want to give pizza or anything else a bad name because one of the things I've been most impressed about is our ability to make almost anything that you could want in a way that you can eat it. Like, I mean, my favorite pizza is pizza that we make with almond flour that we all make ourselves, you know? And, and so it's still pizza. You can, I just, I think it's a lifestyle thing, but anyway, that's a whole different can of worms. And, and I guess
0: it's, it's, it's the family I guess has to decide, do you want to take that journey? You're going to take that journey in a support in a support kind of way. But do you want to take that journey as well? Do you want to be part of that journey? And I think we've had like ebbs and flows. Sometimes you're really on board with it and then sometimes you're not. And you just have to figure out what works best for your family at that time. Because now I've been eating with my gut in mind. And like you said, it changes. I'm not on a a, a very, what Elaine calls, Elaine got all the at the heart of the specific carbohydrate diet, the creator there. I'm not on a very specific carbohydrate diet. I have kind of moved. It's morphed. It's changed. And so you kind of have – it's a roller coaster. Kind of sometimes there's the ups and the downs, and and it will change over time. But it's been – I did this back in 2008. So that's when all of this started, when I actually changed my diet. So it's been a long time and it's it's changed. For the kids, it's changed. You know, They when I started all of this, they were young. They've now gotten older. Now I have a 20-year-old and a 19-year-old. We do. And they don't follow that so much anymore. In fact, the things that they eat just make me really grossed out. So, But I, I have to believe in my heart. The way that we have followed this as a family, the way that you might be doing this as a family, I have to believe that at some point, that information, that knowledge that I've given them about eating healthy and eating for your own body type, I have to believe that that is going to come out in them again. Kids... always a challenge. And when you've got gut struggles and you make eating healthy part of your own gut healing plan, it's bound to ruffle your kid's feathers. But through it all, I know that Bill and I have always felt like the best way to have the whole family on board and support my chronic illness was always to be honest. About what's happening with me. Here, Bill and I share some of our insights on how to keep the communication and the dialogue open when it comes to your kids and IBD.
1: How have you integrated communicating with the kids about your Crohn's disease into kind of the relationship with them and, and you know, kind of within the relationship of our mm-hmm. whole family?
0: it it just always has been. So there was never a time when I had to, it's like with you, I had to sit you down and say, I have Crohn's. It was, it never was that. It just always was like with our first child. I always said to him, there was never a time when I had to say you were a born of infertility treatments because we just always talk to him about it. So he just always knew. And same thing with Crohn's. We just always talk to the kids about it. Well, mommy has Crohn's so she can't do this or she does do this because she has Crohn's. So I, as I took the path of just always having it be a part of their life and but ba- but but trying to balance that because you don't want to have a four and six-year-old that you completely freak out because you're giving them too much information. It has to be very age appropriate. And, you know, I feel like there's a lot that we've done wrong as parents. We can always look back and say, oh my gosh, I sucked at that or that. But something that I feel like we have done well is this whole chronic illness piece that affects all of us. I feel like we've really just told the kids age-appropriate things at their level. And we did that with, you know, the individual child in mind, thinking about what would be best for them. But it's always just been a part of them. They never didn't know that I had Crohn's. They just always knew. And whenever they – And especially our youngest will come with questions. Mom, what is that like for you? And what he's so cute about, he's such an empath. And so just kind of, yeah, just sharing it with them and just keeping them a part of the picture. Every time something good or bad happens with that, I always share it with them on their level.
1: Yeah. I think, I guess that gets back to communication. I mean, again, it can be awkward conversations and, and I know, you know, unfortunately, i you know i guess some people would say unfortunately um we have three boys um which makes it which makes it complicated um because boys have you know are notorious at fart jokes and and find the you know just the concept of any anything scatological is humorous to a you know a boy right and so i think you know communicating with them in an age appropriate way i know that sometimes they've been you know, they push back, like you said, you know, now they, you know, they're kind of going off on their own, the older ones and, and kind of relishing the opportunity, total junk that they maybe didn't get exposed to. And, and I think what, what you've done is lay a foundation of health for them that they'll fall back on. I mean, they've got to spread their wings and, 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 you know, kind of rebel against that and um, the diet or the uh, lifestyle and, and, you know but i think they they'll always come back to it because they have a foundation they they understand things about health and healthy eating uh and your body that you know i never knew as a kid and most people don't know as a kid because you've communicated with them kind of openly about it uh, all along
0: communication, it's huge and especially difficult when you're a mom, running kids here and there, trying to keep up with everyone's schedules while taking care of your own needs as well. That's where that spousal connection comes into play because we can't do it all on our own. Having an understanding partner, someone who you feel comfortable talking things through with is I think at the heart of all of this. It starts with you and your partner and then that bond trickles down through to the kids. And Bill and I haven't always been so great with this. Like most couples, we have our ups and our downs. But I think over the years, we've improved. Here we open a can of worms and talk about how we've personally benefited from scheduled sit-downs. Instead of just thinking that we'll just always have open, honest, direct communication, we'll have this pathway to talk about IBD, raising our kids, and about how we can best support each other. Instead of thinking that that's just always an open thing, we finally realized that if we don't schedule the time for that, it just isn't going to happen. One of the things that I think has been helpful for us in terms of communication and talking about Croons and how it impacts us is just having scheduled times to get together and talk about it and say what what's going on with you right now and what are your needs.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I it's not always easy to be insightful um, about what your needs are and and to be aware of what your partner's needs are, but I think I think you have to try to you know, no, like I talked about, you know, me being a a bit, you know, solicitous in a way. Um you know, I need to be aware of that because I, I recognize that, you know, my need to take care doesn't always meet where you're at right? And I may be kind of approaching you. I need to take care of you. I need to take care of you. I need to take care of you. And you may be in a period where you want to be more independent and you want to not think about it, or you want to not have me as directly involved. Um, And so I think knowing your own needs and communicating those needs, recognizing that my needs will change, your needs will change. They won't always match up, but we have a long range, uh, you know, kind of a long-term goal, um means you have to kind of be comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations sometimes that you're not meeting my needs right now and and um or you know you're not doing enough to meet my needs or you're doing something that's not helpful um or could you do more of this or less of that you know i think it, it it's just it's a conversation you need to be comfortable with and i think you know having a routine where you get used to having those conversations, right? You build them into your routine. Um, I think is helpful.
0: Yeah, and maybe it grows. Maybe it starts off very superficial and then it just grows as you're having those conversations and you have that set time to have that. Maybe you get, you know, more honest and we're vulnerable with each other through, you know, through time. It just takes time.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think you have to build the foundation on things that are maybe easier, like you said, superficial, but you know, that lays the foundation for those harder talks because at the end of the day, I mean, you know, you're going to stick it out. So, you know, you're going to have to communicate about it eventually. So I think that's important. I think, you know, one of the things, um, you know, you talk about in the podcast sometimes is just being a busy mom of three and having your own schedule and me having a schedule i think um having you know scheduling a time to sit down and have a conversation maybe it's once a month you know when you compare calendars and say okay this child has this on this date that child has that on that date we've got soccer these nights and we've got this that night and i've got this doctor's appointment and you're going out of town here those are like logistical conversations but they're also opportunities for you to say you know, on a deeper level and, you know, kind of, I need this, you know, I need you to make three meals when you're going before you go out of town, but I also, you know, I kind of, I need this, or I, I need you to come to this doctor's appointment because it, you know, this, or I'm really struggling with thinking about making this um, change to my, you know, kind of my eating lifestyle or, you know, I mean, they, the, you know, or, or I'm overwhelmed at work and I, I, I'm worried that I can't meet your needs, you know, I think you know just being comfortable and having those conversations it can start with like a scheduled logistics sit down but it can it should be a like you can't just assume it's going to happen
0: because when there have been times in our relationship where we didn't do that then everything just when the bad times happen it crumbles so but when but when we're having periods where we're really communicating about things it just always, I don't know, I just always feel more supported by you. And when I have your support, I just, that's everything to me. So communicating to your kids on their level, communicating with your partner is just in setting aside those times for it. I think that's really huge when you have a chronic illness like Crohn's or colitis. (laughs) When your illness is less active, when it's in a less active state, when you're in remission, the communication pathway it is much easier to find time for. But what happens in the hard IBD times when you're struggling physically and all you can think of is, how can I get my logistical needs met? Forget emotional support, how can I get through each day just by putting one foot in front of the other? That's a place that I'm guessing you're all too familiar with. It's a place that Bill and I are all too familiar with as well. Here we talk about the day-to-day struggle when Crohn's or colitis gets under your skin. Something that we've been having to do a lot lately, I feel like I've mentioned this a couple, at least a couple times on the podcast, is that you know i went through that really long period of feeling really well everything going well but because of now i've had these surgeries these past surgeries now i have lots of scar tissue and so in january i had a another my third bowel resection and so life has been a little bit rough <laughs> since then yeah he's you can't see him but he's yes. nodding <laughs> he's not he's nodding his head So, what happened with this last bowel resection is a problem with just the fact, just the impact of taking out part of the bowel, because the part that they took out is a part that controls the bile flow in your body. And so now I have a condition I didn't have before the surgery, and I'm thinking, why did I have this surgery? But I had to. Now I have something called bile acid malabsorption. And so the last several months have been really challenging. And so it's created now more, I don't more sick days. I guess I would say more sick days than I used to have and a lot of struggle. And so my diet has had to change yet again.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it, it's coincided with, um, our lives being busy, having two adult children, you know, both home right now because it's the summer um, from school, and um, you know, trying to maintain normalcy by having some vacations or some time off in there. It's 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 kind of more focused on the logistics these days, like you know, just getting this done, getting that done. I know, you know it sounds weird, but some of the times where I guess it won't sound weird because I've told you I'm kind of solicitous in that way. So like when you've had surgeries, those should be the hardest times, but in fact, they're the easiest because we're solely focused on that and you're focused on you and I'm focused on you and I'm happy and not happy, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I feel most comfortable doing, um, is taking care, like physically taking care, doing things like I, you know, I stayed with you in the hospital, the, what was it? Five days that we were at Johns Hopkins after this last surgery. Um, You know, those periods were focused and we're on the same page and we're doing what needs to be done. These days, it's more challenging because I don't feel like I'm meeting your emotional needs while I'm busy meeting all your, the logistic needs, you know, and making the meals and, you know, kind of doing those more of those kinds of things. Um, I just remember, I know it sounds weird, but it was almost fun in a way after you came home you know, coming upstairs and I was your housekeeping and I was your dietary and I was, you know, those what kinds was of it things that
0: you said when you came in dietary uh, or yeah. you said-
1: <laughs> housekeeping, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I would just, you know, I would just kind of, it, it, those were, it seems easier. Um, so it's weird that when you're, you know, kind of in surgery or post-surgery, um, that it's easier cause we're, but you know, it is, and then it's the, the challenge is more the day to day to day to day. Um, and right now, it's a lot about logistics and being really, really busy and not, you know, feeling like, you know, that I'm, I'm meeting your emotional needs. And I think that that's challenging. And and I know you need something, but being so busy doing the logistical, I don't have the bandwidth to do the other. And I think, you know, just kind of communicating and, and, um, trying to find balance is it's, it's not easy. Um, it's, it's, and sometimes it doesn't feel terribly doable, but it's ultimately doable. It's just, it's hard. It's
0: hard right now. We're in another hard phase of Crohn's. We've, we've gone, we went through them a lot in the beginning really affected us in terms of infertility and challenges with children And then just doctor hopping until I could find a doctor. And then a lot of bliss, a lot of years of bliss. And now after this surgery, it's a struggle again. So we're kind of back. We're back in that. But now we're at a different place in our life. And so I think,
1: two, it's the expectation. Like, you know, we kind of expected. I think both of us kind of expected that this surgery would at least help.
0: No, it would just be a really quick thing. Yeah, get rid of that scar tissue in there. Closer up. It was supposed to be teeny tiny. Yeah. And yeah, the expectation of yes. And of course, nobody said to me, well, just by the way, you might yeah, have this this big happen, problem happen, right? after not a single person told me that. In fact, I had never heard of bile acid malabsorption. And so, things have been, yes, I was, I thought this surgery, my expectation was that it wasn't going to be no big deal and I would just get back to life like it was. And it has not happened that way. Through this latest challenge, through this 35 year journey I've been on with IBD, I've learned that my biggest assets are my faith, my hope, and my stubborn nature. It keeps me from never giving up. In this last segment, Bill and I talk about the secret to mental and physical longevity in the face of inflammatory bowel disease and how your partner in life can be at the heart of your healing journey. But one of the things that I really want to stress before we wrap up is that no matter what, it, it took me a few months. I really had to wrap my head around this. I, I really needed to stay home and take care of myself and focus on me. But in the end, I said, I need to figure out how to leave the house because I can't, I can't do that. I can't let Crohn's take my social life and my family life and my enjoyment I just can't let it do that I I haven't done that since day 1 and I'm just not going to let it do it I I I'm not I refuse so it took me a little while especially with this one to figure out how am I going to keep going but I guess that the the biggest takeaway really from this this episode is that you can't let it take your life because You'll blink and 30 years will pass and you won't have lived and had these amazing experiences. Maybe those experiences need to be curtailed or tailored or changed in some way. Maybe you can't do it all like your neighbor or your friend or your sister, your brother, whoever. But you can't let it completely stop you in its tracks. You deserve a full life with your partner, with your family, with the things that you enjoy doing. And this latest blip that I'm experiencing, it's challenging, but I'm not going to let it take my life. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to give it that power.
1: I think that's probably a healthy, I think that's the most you can do, right? Is, is, you know, I'm saying, you know, you have to recognize what your strengths and what your needs and you know, kind of what your limits are. And I think that's important. I think that's important for everybody.
0: Brings it back again to the family, because I, do, I don't know how you would do this alone. I don't know. I, I mean, it doesn't have to be a nuclear family kind of situation in traditional, right, family. But in some way, you have to have people around you, right? I think it comes down to having letting people in which was difficult for me in the beginning like we talked about but letting people in and letting them help you in in ways that they can and being just being open to the idea of sharing this journey with other people whether it's your kids or your spouse or your parents or friends or whoever it is just letting people in so that you're not alone in 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 Feeling and experiencing all of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, not to make it all cognitive or whatever, but like it's not just this; it's it's everything. We know that, you know, people that have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, do better if they have social support. People that are depressed, people that have chronic pain, all do better with they if they have social support. And you know, you may be, um, you know, kind of by yourself, but it doesn't mean you have to be alone because you know, you know, you, maybe you have a spouse, you have, you're, you know, you've reached a point where you're very comfortable talking about Crohn's and what its impact is. And, and I think that benefits, you know, thousands of people that you are where you're at, but you haven't always been there and, you know, just kind of taking those steps to reach out and to let other people know and to talk, tell your story um, to other people um and let let there be social support for you even if it's a little awkward at at first i think makes a a big difference
0: yeah i couldn't do this without you honey
1: i'm very honored that you um let me be on this 100th episode
0: i hope I that it's helpful. helpful for people like i said at the top of the episode i think it's a good one to share with your partner with your family, with those people around you that you that are your support system or that you want to be your support system just to kind of let them know what this could be like, what are the possibilities and how you can live an amazing full life even during the ups and even during the downs. Because I think we have a pretty full life. What do you think?
1: I think we have a very full life.
0: There's more to it, us than Crohn's. <laughs>
1: That is for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, I love you, my dear. And thank you for walking this journey with me for the last 30 years.
1: And I love you. And I can't wait for the next 30 years.
0: So that's their IBD story. Bill and I sharing the ups and downs of IBD, each from our own perspective. Thanks for joining Bill and I today for this very special 100th episode It's been an honor to walk this journey with you. Until we meet again, I'm wishing you a cheeky and healthy gut healing journey. Chat soon.
1: Okay, I'm going to mute myself so I don't cause problems.
0: Well, don't mute yourself when you talk.
1: Well, not when I talk.
0: Singing exercises like uh, they do in the theater.
1: The theater. (laughs) A little stuffy down here. Okay. go.
0: Hey there, my love. Thank you so much for joining me on this 100th episode. Can you believe it? Me? <laughs> Let's do that again. <laughs> Don't mute yourself yet.
1: I thought you said, okay. I thought you said I was going to be quiet for a while. Okay. Go
0: quiet, but not completely. Quiet. Okay.
1: I'll take like, number if one. If you
0: respond, just make it short. <laughs> I was
1: like, I thought that was weird. Like who, who's she calling my love?